Hey, listeners, I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? In each short conversation, I ask a writer a non writing related question that lets you and me get to know them just a little bit better as a person. I'm an author myself, so I'm always looking for an excuse to ask the odd questions. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome critically acclaimed author Melanie Finn. The New York Times Book Review named Melanie's novel The Gloaming a notable book of 2016. This year saw the release of Melanie's fourth book, The Hair, described as a brooding feminist thriller, daring and unputdownable, and prose that shimmers with a stark loveliness. Melanie was born and raised in Kenya and the U.S., and now lives with her family on a remote hill in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Hi there, Melanie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joni. Thanks so much for having me. Melanie, I'd like to start out by asking you about Rosie, your main character in The Hair. We first meet her, and she's this young woman who was raised by a grandmother who didn't love her. She's a victim of sexual abuse. She really has no sense of self. Then she meets Bennett Kinney, this charming, well-educated older man who quickly goes from bad to worse in the course of their relationship. I loved how you developed Rosie's character and how she kept surprising me by her resilience and her resourcefulness. I wonder, did she surprise you too? Or did you know from the beginning that she had that strength of character? So for me, I always knew that Rosie was going to prevail because I did. And this is a deeply personal book for me, having survived sexual abuse and come to a point in my mid-50s where I really feel like I put that to bed and that there is a way to move beyond that, although it takes an extraordinarily long time. And so a lot of it was looking back at simply what I had done and what had fed into my strength to sort of prevail and move away from bad characters like Bennett, who, you know, you're really drawn to like a moth to the flame. If you have that kind of unstable upbringing, you just make those terrible choices over and over again. So to be able to spring free of that is really what I wanted Rosie to be able to do. Of course, you know, she does free herself from Bennett in rather dramatic (laughs) circumstances. You do what you have to do to survive. (laughs) That's right. There's this one scene. It's it's a stunning scene in the book in the second half where the now middle-aged Rose She is confronting her image in the mirror. And it was shocking to me, the loathing she felt for her physical body. It took me by surprise because I didn't expect Rose to feel that way, not after all she'd been through and her strength of character. And she asked herself this question in the scene, what was the point of a woman her age? So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that scene, why you felt it was so important to her character and to the book. You know, that is incredibly perceptive, Joni. In fact, I was reading the scene the other day and I was struck by the self-loathing and how I wondered, you know, did I actually get this right? Is this something that this deeply practical woman would feel? And I sort of circled back to this idea of womanhood and my own coming into menopause as I was writing the book. But also, of course, I started writing the book under the beginning of the Trump administration. And so there was this sort of amplifying idea of how women should look and how women should act. And we're supposed to look like Melania Trump in approaching 50. And as I kind of careened into my own menopause, where everything changes in your body in a way that society tells you isn't good. And so what do you do with that? 
So with Rosie, I wanted her to be looking at herself and assessing herself, having come to middle age and trying to understand who she was. Because the last part of the book is really her trajectory away from being captive within that idea of womanhood, right? So she abandons that or liberates herself from that. At least I hope that she does. That's my intention. So Melanie, in the first part of the book, we see Rose as a young mother. And it's really touching how much she does and sacrifices for her baby, Miranda, so that that girl will grow up feeling loved and never realize how poor they are despite their financial situation. The second part of the book, then, we see Rose older, and her daughter now is in her 30s. And the relationship is interesting. I thought they would be maybe more close given their history, but you drew it a little bit differently. I wondered if you, as a mom yourself, could talk about why you chose to portray their relationship, their adult relationship, the way you did. So this relationship has actually probably of of everything in the book, women have spoken to me with the most unease. They don't like that Miranda isn't better to her mother. And I really thought about what that means. And it really goes to, I think, a deeper question of how mothers are traditionally told to find value in their motherhood. And it's sort of this idea that we find value in motherhood when our children dote on us and come come running back every weekend. And it's sort of like all those years of mothering have their payoff in this reward. And I thought, well, no, I think it should be the other way that, in fact, our children don't notice what we gave up for them. They don't see the seams. They don't see the cracks. They simply have the gifts that we've given them. And Miranda, as I would love for my own daughters, is extremely independent. She is extremely capable. She goes out in the world and she doesn't need the crutch of a man, which isn't to say she doesn't need love or a relationship. But she certainly started life and enters life from a very different place than Rosie did. She simply sees her mother as this really strong woman who raised her, who doesn't need her help. So I would love when my children are in their 30s, that that's how they see me. Your books were released by the family-owned publisher $2 Radio. Can you talk about $2 Radio and your reasons for going with them and staying with them and appreciating them? I have to admit, I'm definitely like an outsider in the publishing industry. And my experience with big publishing houses in the UK, that would have been Penguin and Weidenfeld and Nicholson, and here in the US with St. Martin's Press, were not great, partly because they're these huge machines and their job is to churn out best-selling books. And so if your book doesn't catch on very quickly, you get dropped. And I came to realize late in the game, really with the gloaming, that I'm much more of an independent author. I'm not where the crawdads sing. You know, like it's my books are quite quirky. So being this small publisher, you know, it's a much slower burn. So the book will simmer all year long with continual little blips in promotion, as opposed to the bonanza at the first week. And then if it doesn't do anything, you just never hear from your editor again. It's like they've gone on holiday. You feel abandoned. And the people they publish, you know, they really look for these new voices, these new ways of new perspectives. And I love being part of that family. It's really powerful And then just communicating through bookstores, you communicate a different way if you're an independent writer dealing with an independent bookstore. There's a very powerful personal connection there. 
So I just think they're fantastic. And I can't imagine ever, ever wanting to be published by anybody else. I want to switch gears now and talk about Africa. You left there and came to the States when you were 11, the same age as your own girls are now. But later you went back to work as a writer and a filmmaker with your husband, Matt. And you still have ties to Africa as the founder and director of a small healthcare charity in the Tanzanian bush. I would love to hear a little bit more about that work. The work came about when I was living in Lake Natron, which is indeed a particularly remote area. If you look on the map, it's about halfway between Mount Kilimanjaro and Serengeti National Park in the Great Rift Valley. Uh, My husband and I were there in 2006 for three years filming the Disney nature film, The Crimson Wing. I had done a wilderness first responder course simply because it's something I wanted to do and felt would be useful given the remoteness of where we were. And very quickly, the local Maasai community cottoned onto the fact that I had a first aid kit and and could help. In fact, my first patient was a guy who'd been cut in a knife fight. And they sort of showed up one afternoon, this contingent of men. And we were trying to take a nap. And in the midst of them was this this guy just looked like someone had dumped a bucket of blood on his head. Mm -hmm. And he had this huge wound, uh, gaping wound from his ear across his cheek and down to his lip and they were like so can you help us <laughs> I thought well it's still it's a little bit more than a band-aid and so initially we sent him across the lake in the car because there was a government dispensary in the village on the other side of the lake and um, we got the radio call back from the driver that when they arrived there the nurse had taken one look at this bloody man and locked the dispensary door and run away and hid So the next thing is they're calling me going, so mama, what do we do now? And I thought, oh, well, crikey, you know, okay, bring him back here. So it was a sort of real mash medic moment. We brought him in and we had him on the kitchen table. And I had my mother-in-law who's a doctor. And then I had this great bush medics Bible where there is no doctor open on the page for how to do sutures. And so I stitched this guy's face up. And (laughs) the next day, his brother came up with a goat to thank me. So that sort of started it. And as I begin to delve into this community through this incredible portal to realize this need, and the need wasn't just the need for an actual service. It was that people didn't understand their health issues. They didn't understand why they were sick. They didn't understand what dehydration and diarrhea was. They didn't know how to treat burns. They didn't know how to treat sexually transmitted diseases. So a huge component of our work there, and this is with my mother-in-law, is to educate people and to create these modules of education that are very organic within the community. But what I found fascinating as a writer is that you're constantly trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You're constantly shifting your perspective to an authentic place and teaching a completely different ethnicity requires that same skill set. You're constantly trying to imagine how other people are perceiving the situation. So instead of going in and wagging your finger and saying, why are you you doing this? It's constantly going in and saying, now let's talk about why you're doing this. Like, let me understand why you do it this way. And then once you've got in that place with them, you can then figure out how to share with them the knowledge that you have as a Western medical practitioner. Well, thank you for those efforts and that ongoing work. So you've lived so many places, and now you call home the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. 
which is this gorgeous landscape with ridiculously harsh winters. <laughs> and in the liberal stronghold of Vermont, it's a bit of an anomaly. It also has this unique rural identity. So, Melanie, how do you think you fit into northern Vermont? What connected both Matt and I to this place immediately was the wildness of the landscape. We live off grid, down a you know dirt track. And I think what we like about it socially, we don't live in a liberal town. And I think that that's important for me and for my children to always be aware of different voices and different perspectives and that those come from a legitimate place. Just because someone doesn't think like you and puts a Trump sign out doesn't mean that you should completely dismiss what they think, partly because you know them. You know, you go to town hall meetings with them, you hear them say sensible things, and they hear you say sensible things. One of the most powerful moments in the last year was actually on election night when I and 30 other townspeople here in Kirby went to count votes. And I knew, you know, we would probably split half Trump and half Biden. And it, it was amazing to be in that room with people who I knew and they knew me. And if there was more of that in this country, I honestly think we would be solving some problems because there was respect and there was genuine affection in that room, even though we obviously shared very, very deeply different political ideologies. That story is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> so I'm curious, you are a writer and you're an activist and you're a mom of twins. So what do you do when you really want to cut loose? <laughs> well, I'm a big outdoor person, which, of course, is the complete antithesis of writing. Uh, writing is just like it's like literally putting yourself in a closet on a really uncomfortable chair and just turning out all the lights and like entering some horrible mental tunnel. I, um, I swim in the summer. I run. We've got a couple of old horses. Uh, and in the winter, I actually teach skiing up at Burke Mountain Academy, which does get me out of the house and out of my head. So, yes, I do anything I can to get out of my chair, out of my house and into this incredibly beautiful landscape that we have. Last question, Melanie. If you were to write a six word memoir, what would it be? I think it would be something along the lines of, to paraphrase something I read a long time ago of French photographer. I think it must have been in the 30s and his young wife. And they were being evicted from yet another kind of flea infested garret in Paris for not being able to pay the rent. And they were sitting in the hallway on their suitcases and the wife was in tears. And her husband said to her, courage, life is courage. It will arrange itself. Hmm. So I think if I was to choose anything, it would be that because I just think. We face these moments of courage every day, whether it's trying to overcome a bad mood that we're in and to not yell at our kids and obviously bigger things that we have to face with courage, you know, financial, or personal losses. So I just think that idea of, of courage and some kind of idea that, you know, we'll muddle it, we'll muddle it through, we'll figure it out. No respite for the need for courage, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, Melanie, I want to thank you for this time. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you a little bit better. And I hope our paths cross sometime soon in Vermont. Joni, thanks so much for having me and thanks for reaching out. Listeners, be on the lookout this fall for the release of the paperback edition of Melanie's book, The Underneath, 
also set in northern Vermont. For more information about Melanie and all her novels, be sure to visit her website, MelanieFinn.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, JoniBCole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.